This is our gospel reading. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said, these two chapters are a major turning point in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is turning his face toward Jerusalem. And we're asking, what does it mean to follow him, to follow him to Jerusalem figuratively? For these disciples, it would have been more literally. But what does it mean, last week we asked, to embrace Jesus' cross? And this week we're asking, what does it mean to embrace Jesus' mission? Now, mission, of course, is a loaded red flag alarm term in our culture. It conjures up ideas of Western imperialism, of narrow-mindedness, of missionaries showing up on your front doorstep right as you sit down for dinner. But aren't we all 
looking for a mission in life, if we could take this term and look at it just a little bit differently, aren't we all looking for a purpose, a mission to live by in our fragmented lives, in our incoherent world? I stumbled across a testimony, uh, not a Christian testimony, but just uh, someone sharing what it was like to be 16 years old and not know what life held for them. It's very profound. He says, I've realized in the past few months of my life that I'm scared of growing up and being insignificant, lost and alone. I'm scared of growing up, doing nothing with my life and not having the future I want. I'm only 16 and I know I have my whole life ahead of me, but I'm scared in case I screw up somewhere along the line and ruin everything. After watching movies and reading books, I get awfully depressed Movies make me feel like I need to be part of something big, like I need to capture the happiness in the movie. I'm always thinking about growing up and wanting more than what I'll get, and I just feel like I'm insignificant. Even the big rolling symphonies of orchestras or film scores make me feel inside like I need to rise up and become something, but I just don't know how. I either need to learn how to believe in myself and progress or be happy with what I have and will have. I feel like I can't accomplish either of these. I know this makes me sound so ignorant and petty, but I just need somewhere to let it out instead of it running around in circles in my mind. This is a 16-year-old wrestling with that type, uh, that level of what does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to have happiness? What does it mean to face failure as we all inevitably do? What Jesus is saying in this passage, among other things, is that's what I've come to answer. Those are the questions that I've come to answer, to be the answer for it. It's an audacious claim because he is saying that living unto yourself, pursuing just personal gratification will never be a big enough answer. You must be connected with me and my mission. That's the only answer. That's the only solution that is big enough, weighty enough, significant enough that that can hold the weight of your concerns, your fears, your hopes, and your dreams. We're going to look just at three things this morning. The way of mission, the what of mission, and the why of mission. But before we get into that, let me pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to inspect our lives, inspect our hearts against your word, as we believe in this church that you are the center of everything, that you are the truth behind all truth, that certainly we can encounter you in a real way this morning, and that holding our lives, our future, our mission, our purpose up to you as the ultimate truth is the best thing that we can do this morning. Father, we all come from many different places. Some of us are committed to this journey, committed to mission. Others of us are still skeptical. Some of us are in places of strength, ready to go out to speak the name of Jesus. Others of us get butterflies in our stomach. Others of us are fearful about what that would mean, what it would cost us if we really went into mission for you. Lord, I pray wherever we come from this morning that you would meet us in that place. It's no accident that we're here you are sovereign over our lives. You are, you are the truth. We pray that we would encounter you in a real way this morning. Amen. Now, we skipped over a little bit in chapter 9. 
And in chapter 9, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He has set his face towards, towards Jerusalem. This is the way that he is to go and the way that his disciples are to go. And underlying this question of what does it mean to be in mission for Jesus really is, what does it mean to be a Christian at all? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to embrace Jesus? Now, he says there's, there's two sets of commissionings, one that we skipped over, the sending out of the 12. The 12 apostles is in chapter 9. And Luke has done, and really all the gospel writers do this, they go to great pains to connect what Jesus is doing in his mission to what God has been doing for all time throughout the Old Testament. He's saying, look at what he's doing. Look at how he is doing it. He is fulfilling the promises, the prophecies, the hopes of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the king who's come to answer all of the questions and all of the hopes of the Old Testament. And in picking 12 disciples, he is saying that this is the new Israel. I am reconstituting Israel. I am relaunching what God did in Israel, creating a people that is to bear his name and then to bring his name to bear upon the world's needs and brokenness. He is reconstituting the purpose of Israel and choosing these 12 and sending them out. Where Israel failed, they are to succeed. And then here, only Luke has the two sets of commissionings, the 12 and now the 72. And this number is important as well. And it's one that it refers back to the, the table of nations in Genesis 10, that there is a broadening of the scope of what Jesus is doing, of what Israel was meant to do, that it includes all of the nations. But there's a little bit of a problem because some of the manuscripts have 72 and some of them have 70. And so we need to kind of wrestle with which one it is and what the 70 could be significant of. And if we go with 70, it's even in, more interesting because that's the number of Jacob's totally, total family as they went down into Egypt, as they began their long time of slavery. There were 70 of the Israelites. But then as they came out, as God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, there were 70 leaders that were appointed to represent all of Israel. Now, the 12 were the apostles, those who were specially gifted, those who were the closest companions of Jesus, those who had a, a very particular and limited mission. But then the 70 is representative of all of Israel, all of God's people. Now, what, what's he doing here? What is Luke suggesting? He is saying that God has always had a people who are his beloved and being beloved by God, being a part of Israel, being a part of his community implied that you were in mission. Being a part of Israel, being a part of the church is not simply about your personal salvation. It's not about your personal comfort and gratification. It is being about thrown headlong into the mission of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means that he chooses 12 and then 70 is that everyone is involved, not just the leaders, not just Matthew, not just Peter, but everyone who names the name of Christ is thrown headlong into what Jesus is doing. The way of Jesus is for all of his followers, not just those who are specially trained or ordained. Verse 21, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Now, he's not dissing learning 
and being intelligent and being wise and growing in knowledge? Not at all. But what he is saying is that that's not what's significant about you. As you sign up for my mission, that is not what guarantees success. I use even little children. I have revealed myself to those who don't have any claim because of knowledge, intelligence, or specialty. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. You are special because Jesus has revealed himself to you, not because you are a king or a prophet or smarter than anyone else in the room. You are special, you are chosen, you are called because Jesus wanted to use you. The way of life, the way of Jesus, the way of mission is pointed toward the cross. It is giving up the pursuit of personal gratification and personal comfort, our personal agenda, and it's to seek the good of others. It's to connect ourselves, to be connected, to be embraced by Jesus, and to be thrown into his mission towards the cross. Now, that's the way, the way of life, the way of mission is toward the cross. But what does that look like? The what of mission, the what of following Jesus, the what of really just being a Christian. He sends out the 72 or the 72 by 2, and they're not to carry a purse or a bag or sandals. Now, some of what's going on here is unique to the historical situation. But what are these things? What are these things significant of? They are the basic provisions. They're basic necessities. Now, I don't leave my house and just go down to the coffee shop without carrying a bag with a laptop in it and money, a little bit of money, and an iPhone and all of those things because I don't know what I'm going to meet. I may need those things. I may need a book in order to read while waiting on an appointment. I don't go, you know, just down the block without carrying a lot of these things. These people were being sent to a multi-day journey in which they could expect persecution. They were fully dependent upon the hospitality of others. And it's not asceticism that Jesus is commending here, but it's utter dependence. Disciples, you who have embraced me, now go, devoid of any tangible means of comfort and provision. That's what's represented in these things. It's provision and comfort. They were going in utter dependence upon the hospitality of others, upon Jesus meeting their needs through the hospitality of others. Disciple, go, no matter what the cost. If you've embraced me, go, and I will provide. I will be at work through you. And then you'll know that you meet a fellow disciple by how? By their willingness to give up provision and comfort to meet your needs. That they will inconvenience themselves in taking you in and providing you shelter and comfort. You see, following Jesus has tangible signs. By their fruit, you will know them. You will find the others who are people of peace, who are people who are disciples, because they will serve you. They will give up what they're doing to provide for you. Now, okay, you may be asking, but what does it really look like to us? You've talked about the historical circumstances, how they might be different, but what does it look like for me as an individual? What does it look like for in town to go into mission? And let me just answer those two things in order. Individually, what does it mean? And then as a church community, even if you're not part of in town, there's a lot of visitors here this morning. What does it mean to be 
sent into mission? What does it look like? Well, first of all, individually. Now, we all realize, especially if we live in Portland, that we are in post-Christendom, that people aren't wired up these days to be asking, what must I do to be saved? How should I come to meet Jesus? Can you tell me how to be justified before God? I've lived here for three years. I've never had anyone ask me that, just who's an average Portlander. Some of you have, but none of my neighbors are interested in those questions. They're not itching for me to explain the plan of salvation to them. So then how do we enter in? How do we bring the message of Jesus to bear upon the actual questions, not the questions we wish that the culture was asking? Who isn't asking, wherever you live, post-Christendom, in the middle of the religious South, whatever it would be, who's not asking, where is love to be found? Who's not asking, what's the orienting principle of the universe and of my life? Is there something that's coherent? Is there something that's significant enough that I can plug into that will give meaning and purpose to life? Just like the 16-year-old that we read, about, read from a moment ago. He's just being honest. He's found a forum on the internet. A lot of times internet discussion can be places of hostility because you say things that you wouldn't say in person. But it's also a gift because there's some anonymity and he's just being honest. Where is purpose in life to be found? Now, if you're a Christian, think back with me for a moment about who it was that was most significant for you finding the Christian answers to those questions. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your professor, or maybe it was just a, a close friend. Certainly, it's a, it's a cluster of things. It may be books that you've read and so forth. But likely, there's been a person or a set of persons who's helped you the most to answer those questions. And two qualities were probably present in those people. One is that they were present in your life at a critical juncture, and two, that their lives that stood behind their claims to Christianity gave and had some credibility. Or to put it another way, they didn't just show up on your doorstep, but they had a relationship with you that you valued and a practice of life that had some correlation, though not perfect, with their confession, with what they said they believed. Now, if you were to take that and apply it forward to you, how are you to be that kind of person in the lives of other people? Well, you have to be present. You have to have real, authentic relationships. Certainly, there are those moments where if you understand the gospel and you're in conversation, you're among strangers, that conversation might shift towards spiritual things, and that's great. But largely, the way that you're in mission is towards those who know and love you that you know and love. You have to be present, and you have to have some type of credibility that you're inviting people into Jesus' kingdom, into his, under his rule, and that your life, though not perfectly, though not fully, that it embodies that to some degree, that you've begun to work out what it means to live underneath that rule, that in the very fundamental places of your life, you're asking regularly, what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? What does it mean for my life to be lived underneath his kingdom rule? With your money, with your body, with your sex life, with your relationships, especially those relationships with people that are different from you, with those who are your enemies, 
Are you asking those questions? What does Jesus claim upon me in these circumstances? If the mission is announcing that the kingdom has come near, that's what these 72 went out. The kingdom has come near in Jesus. Now, we've been talking about what that means and what the kingdom is for really our whole study of Luke. But that's the basic announcement, that the kingdom is present in Jesus. And if that is your mission, if that's what you are making proclamation of, then it must have first come near to you. Individually, and then as a church, as a community, that you begin to bear witness, church, that at the center of the universe is a loving, sacrificial, compassionate God who embraces his enemies. How do you begin to embody that? How do you bear witness to that? What's demonstrated by a community that learns to live as if that is true, that there's tangible signs that people within this community actually believe that, that they begin to forgive their enemies that they are compassionate towards those who are different from them, that they care not about their own needs and their own agenda, but those who are even outside of these walls. Leslie Newbegin, who's probably written more intelligently about some of these questions, says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How is that possible? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Do we in-towners, do you, other Christians who are involved in other churches, do you embrace the sinful and the marginalized and the broken and the people that you don't like? Do you embrace them? Do you love them in spite of what they have done to you? Are you provoking others to imagine a different way of life, a different rule? In most big cities, you'll find communities of exiles, people that have moved from a different country, from a different, even just a different state. There's enough differentiation between cultures. You'll find exiles gathering together. You'll find Russian communities, Samoan communities, Chinese communities. Now, in Portland, we have a Chinatown that's not all that. But if you go down to San Francisco, the Chinatown there is vibrant, and it's occupied by thousands of Chinese people. And it's an actual community that reproduces somewhat the homeland. It's not a perfect replica, but it's similar enough that if you visit there, you get a sense of what, it, what life in a Chinese city might be like. The cuisine is different. The signage is different. It's all in Chinese. The predominant language is different. The values and family life is different. Now, you realize when you go to Chinatown that you haven't been teleported magically to China, but you have some sense of that it's close enough to give you some sense of what life in China is like. The church is an exile community. The church is a representative community of something different, of a different type of rule. The church must embody the rule of God, and it is inexact, and we're imperfect, but it should provide a sense of what it's like to live within that kingdom in the same way that visiting Chinatown would give you a sense of what living in China is like. There must be some 
differentiation of values, of life, of perspective, of hope, of meaning and purpose that you, that I, that this church is embodying that God has not forgotten his world, has not abandoned his people, and he is asserting his kingly rule in the world. And therefore, you, I, in town, other churches must reject worldly power. We must receive the marginalized and the poor. We must grant forgiveness and love even to the enemies. Now, what will be the response? What will happen, individuals, church communities, as you begin to embody the kingdom rule of God? Well, the response will be varied. Jesus in verses 13 and 14 tells us of two different responses. There are the ancient cities, and then there's the cities that he had ministered in. And it's very different responses. He says that everywhere I went, I did miracles, and yet I was rejected. If I had done the very things that I had done in Bethsaida, in Capernaum, in Sodom, and Tyre, they would have repented. They would have put on sackcloth and ashes, yet you rejected me. I gave you every evidence to believe. Now, what we should see here is that unbelief is complex. It's not just the lack of something, but the presence of something. It's not just the lack of faith, but it's the presence of resistance. It's the presence of a willing desire not to believe. Jesus did miracles in front of them. He raised the dead. He healed the sick, and yet they rejected him, yet they refused him. Now, don't we sometimes think, whether we're standing outside of the church looking in skeptically and critically, or whether we're inside the church dealing with a really significant, naughty, painful problem, don't we sometimes think that if Jesus would just do a miracle, If he would just show up and reveal himself on my terms, then I would believe. But it's not a lack of information. It's not even a lack of evidence, but a decision not to believe. John Diamond was a journalist for the London Times, and he uh, got cancer and died in 2001. But he became well known up to the point of his death for writing these penetrating essays about where is meaning to be found, and what is life all about, and so forth. Now, he was an atheist, but he wrote a book called See, Because Cowards Get Cancer Too. And he says that many Christians emailed him during the time leading up to his death, trying to convince him to repent, trying to convince him to believe Jesus, and so forth. And he says this, There is no level at which the evangelist and I can engage. They tell me about their spiritual product as if I might not have come across it before. As if in living 47 years in a Christian country, I might not have yet stumbled upon the idea of Christ as a redeemer. They don't seem to understand that I can't force myself to believe what I don't believe. Which is the point at which the agnostics usually say, I only wish I could believe. And I used to say that myself, but I've discovered that it's not true. I'm happy not believing. And that's where the evangelists don't seem to understand. You see, it's not just the lack of faith, the lack of information. It's the presence of resistance. It's the presence of a lack of desire to believe. Why is that? Well, it's because the gospel is not only news of grace. It's not not only news of comfort, but it's a condemnation of a way of life. It's a condemnation of a king on a throne. 
It's setting up a new king. And who has to be dethroned? You and I. We have to step down off of our throne. We have to give up claim and control over our life. So, of course, people are going to decide, I don't want anything to do with that. You could do miracle after miracle. You could share, you know, apologetic after apologetic, and it's not going to work unless Jesus comes in and breaks down their door and they say, okay, I get it. I understand it. You see, it's not just words of comfort and grace, but it's words of condemnation. You must step down from the throne of your life. You must give up control. None of us want to do that. The message of the kingdom challenges the very fundamental presuppositions of our lives that life is good insofar as I pursue what I want and the gospel says no, it's exactly the opposite. That's the response. It's going to be varied. But the 72 come back and what do they return with? They return with joy and say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then Jesus gives us this rather peculiar response. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? It's very kind of curious. Well, it means two things. And one is very intimidating, and one is very reassuring. One is intimidating. That when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, is that when you embrace Jesus' mission, you are engaging in a cosmic battle. There are kingdoms at war, and you've now chosen sides. That the enemy, Jesus calls him Satan, will bring his forces to your doorstep. Before, you could just go on through life because he didn't care. You were following him without resistance. Now you've chosen sides, and he says, I'm bringing war to your doorstep. Now, maybe this talk of Satan and the devil sounds a little hokey, a little poltergeisty to a culture that doesn't generally understand Christian principles. But Graham Greene, who's one of the literary giants of the 20th century, says, I've never understood why people who can swallow the enormous improbability of a personal God boggle at a personal devil. Isn't that true? Don't you have to give up all spirituality whatsoever in order to say that there's no way that there's an embodied personal evil? To be in mission in Jesus' way, you're being thrown headlong into a cosmic battle. And it's beyond your power to control or to manage. And that's one of the reasons he says, don't take sandals, don't take a bag, don't take money. Because you can't control life anyway. I'm going to give you a tangible, tangible sign, a representation that you can't manage life. And it's an example for all of us to follow, not in the particulars, not in the exact circumstances, but in our faith, in our trust, if we are Christians. One is very intimidating. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven means you are in a cosmic battle of evil versus good. And then the other is that it's reassuring. <clears throat> Luke acknowledges that Satan is far power, more powerful than you and I probably understand. He is an adversary. <clears throat> but before Jesus began his public ministry, he, before he is sent into mission, he goes into the desert and does battle with Satan. Satan tempts him, and he says, I will forego nothing to turn Jesus astray. He offers him the kingdoms of the world. 
exactly the same tactics he uses with you and I. If you will follow me, I will give you your heart's desire. I will open up the world to you. Take up your rightful place. Why would God deny what you want? Why would God deny your desires? But he's falling from heaven. He's defeated. The promises that he tells you and I are false promises. He's bested by Jesus in the desert. And Jesus finally will defeat him on the cross and invites you to then gather up the spoils of war. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do you see? Jesus has given you victory. Jesus has granted the defeat of Satan. So it's not your job to go out and out of your own strength do battle. It is simply gathering up the spoils of war. The harvest is plentiful. Go, be sent, pick up the fruit. Now we talked about the way of mission, the what of mission. What does it look like? Now the why. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to be thrown into battle? It's much easier. It's much more comfortable just to coast and to do what you want. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus says, uh, a few verses hence, I have given you authority to triumph on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing, nothing will harm you. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like kind of, you know, Sand Mountain, Alabama with the handling of snakes and so forth. Fascinating book, by the way. Dennis Covington writes about that. That's why it came to mind. Get it. It's a great, great book. But that's what it sounds like. It sounds like, you know, harebrained ideas of what it means to live in the church and you candle snakes and you drink poison and so forth. But what Jesus is giving us here is a metaphor for the forces of evil. He's saying, disciples, as you've come back, I've caught a glimpse that the kingdom is going forward. I've caught a glimpse that the vict- of the victory of what is good and wonderful. I've caught a, vi- a glimpse that the gospel is actually at work. As I see you binding up broken people, as I see you healing people of their, uh, of their ailments, as I see you preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom to the poor, I've seen a glimpse of what is true and what will come to be more true. There's reason to rejoice in these things. Jesus has joy in these things. The disciples have joy in these things. But he says, make sure you rejoice about the right things. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's the motivation for mission? What's the motivation for throwing yourself into a cosmic battle? It's rejoicing. It's not duty. It is gratitude that your name is written in, the, in heaven forever. Remember, you can be driven in mission by the very things that drove you in life before. Achievements, accolades, a sense of winning. You feel significant in life when you win, when you have accolades, when people say, way to go. And the very same thing can happen in mission. It can happen inside the church. Look at how faithful that person is. Look at how they are able to talk about Jesus with other people. Don't build your sense of joy around achievements and victories. Even if they're spiritual, it's okay to be glad. But if you build your sense of self upon those spiritual victories, then what happens when they no longer come? 
your name is written in heaven. Even if miraculous things happen around you, the bigger miracle is that you have been changed. The bigger miracle is that God saw you and said, I will write your name personally in my book forever, and it will never be taken out. You see, God knows you if you're a Christian and counts you as his, and that's the biggest miracle. That's the motivation for mission. You don't go and make a name for yourself, but Jesus gives you his name eternally. The motivation is that you've received something that you cannot earn, that you cannot manage, and that you can never lose. Now, in conclusion, quickly, outsiders, those who are visiting here that may not be ready to sign up for this, I understand. It's a big task, and maybe you're still working out kind of the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian at all. And can you trust what the Bible says about reality? The question that you should walk out of here with is, what are you giving your life to? Because we're all giving our lives to something. We're all serving a particular kingdom and a type of idea of what the future will hold. Is it big enough for you? Is it big enough to hold the weight of your desires to fulfill you in the most foundational parts of who you are? Is it big enough? That's the question that you can walk out of here with. Insiders, Christians, those who have said, I believe, I've embraced Jesus, and I want to embrace his mission, but I get butterflies. I feel like a failure. I feel like I stumble over my words. I feel like I get sweaty palms whenever I even think about mission. It's intimidating. I feel like a screw-up. Well, there's good news because you're the only kind of people that Jesus uses. Screw-ups and failures are the kind of people that Jesus uses to carry out his mission. So there's good news. There's hope for you and for I. In 2003, the Atlantic Monthly ran an article on, called Winton's Blues, talking about Winton Marsalis. And the author, who is a fan of jazz music, walks into the Village Vanguard, one of the best, greatest jazz clubs uh, in the world. And Winton Marcellus is there playing, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And it's unaccompanied, and it's beautiful. He's just nailing every note, and the audience is transfixed. It's total silence except for Winton and his trumpet, and everyone is just blown away and caught up in the moment, and then what happens? Cell phone rings. Cell phone rings in the middle of Winton Marsalis playing this amazing piece, and the guy, instead of pressing the button, he walks out while it's still ringing. What's up with that? Just press the button while you walk out. This transcendent moment is interrupted by the shrill sound of a cell phone playing music. Now, what does Wenton Marsalis do? One of the greatest trumpeters alive, he begins to play the tune of the cell phone. As the guy walks out, he picks up right where the cell phone left off and begins to play it. And then he changes keys and goes right back into, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. The audience is floored, blown away. Most of us would have just yelled at the guy, sneered at the guy. He makes it a moment of transcendence, and it's beautiful. He takes something that's ugly and grotesque and unappealing and redeems it. He makes it beautiful, 
And that's exactly what Jesus longs to do with you and I in mission and in life. He says, go, I send you, and it will be ugly, and you'll fail, and you'll feel like a screw-up, but I'm with you. The harvest is plentiful. I have defeated Satan. Go, I'll make it beautiful. And then with you, you are a failure. You're a screw-up. We all know it. Just admit it, Jesus says, and let me make you beautiful. Let me give you what you can never earn on your own. That is my love, my salvation, my eternal forgiveness. Your name is written in the book of life forever. So go, let me make you beautiful. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope even of this passage. That's the hope of why anyone, the reason that any of us would choose to go into mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking truth to our hearts, for warning us that we oftentimes are our own worst enemies, that we seek what we think is rightfully ours, that we pursue what we want, our desires, and we're left just wanting more. We're left just uh, trying to reach for more and more, and it never comes. Father, would you pray, would you uh, help us to see that it is only in you, it is only in giving up our rights, it is only in giving up our agenda that we can be truly made whole, that we can be most human. Father, I pray that as we walk out of here, you would let us continue to ask these questions, to be critical of our own desires, and to take your word into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.